BP added more than $70 billion to the U.S. economy in 2022. Investments like acquiring America's largest biogas producer, Arkea Energy, and starting up new infrastructure in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. Are you a software professional looking to make a lasting impact on people and the planet? At General Motors, our vision is a world with zero crashes, zero emissions, and zero congestion. And we need innovative people like you to join us on this journey and challenge the limits of what is possible. From autonomous cars to software-defined vehicles, you'll translate breakthrough technologies like AI into experiences that people love, all while pushing the world forward toward an all-electric future. See how you can shape the future of mobility at careers.gm.com. You and Betty and the Nancys and Bills and Joes and Janes will find in the study of science a richer, more rewarding life. Hey, welcome to Inquiring Minds. I'm Andrea Viscontis. This is a podcast that explores the space where science and society collide. We want to find out what's true, what's left to discover, and why it matters. It's hard to live adjacent to Silicon Valley and not think about how tech culture has influenced society in general. Tech has been around long enough to generate satirical television shows like Silicon Valley. But who better to tell the story of a tech giant and a startup than a person who is trained as a journalist, who is also a really great writer, and who served as Google's vice president of communications on the management team for several years. Prior to that, Jessica Powell was the chief marketing officer of a dating site called Badu. But I wanted to talk to her today about a novel that she wrote called The Big Disruption, a totally fictional but essentially true Silicon Valley story. It was the first novel ever published by Medium, a digital platform, and it's already been read by over 200,000 readers. But not only that, Powell is donating the proceeds from the book to Yes We Code, an organization dedicated to helping underrepresented groups access opportunities and achieve success in the tech sector. The book tells a story of an exiled prince who's now working as a janitor in Silicon Valley, but who finds himself in a product management position at a big tech company. I almost said Google. (laughs) It's not Google, but it might as well be. Just like in many big tech companies, the sales guys are fighting with the engineers The female employees are not being treated as humanely as they could be, and the yoga-loving, sex-obsessed CEO is planning a moon colony. Jessica Powell, welcome to Inquiring Minds. Thanks for having me. So I want to get our audience uh, first on the same page in terms of your journey to where you eventually ended up writing a satirical novel about uh, startup culture in Silicon Valley. Uh, but obviously you didn't, that wasn't what you started out to do when you first uh, sort of started building your career. So tell us a little bit about um, sort of where you started and, and how you ended up in Silicon Valley. Um, let's see, I'll try and do a short version. Um, I right out of school, I was a journalist. Um, I yeah, I really wanted to be a journalist, uh, and I interviewed at all these different places. I remember interviewing at like Food and Wine, and they actually had wine, like open wine glasses, on the desk while they were interviewing me. And uh, and I ended up interviewing at a place um, where they did like commo- they they covered commodities trading. So like of all of the things that you could 
that you perhaps dream about when you're thinking of being a journalist, like probably covering commodities is not the thing that you think of, but it paid the best. And I was terrified of living in New York and not having enough money for rent. And so I actually took the job I was least interested in. And I did that for about 18 months and um, actually surprise, surprise, hated doing it. Um, I spent most of my day trying to get traders to tell me the prices, like what, you know, futures trading or, or day trading. And they would, um, I was pretty much the only woman and they would, they would only want to give me the trades if I would go out on dates with them or if I tell them my bra size or whatever. I mean, it was so (laughs) bad that it was almost kind of funny, but like it does kind of wear on you. Right. And so, Eventually, I left my job, applied to grad school, thought I'd come back to the U.S., but had saved up um, in the meantime and um, moved to France. And actually, while I was in France, uh, ended up again getting whatever job I could. And this generally, my career was like this. I was always just taking whatever job would allow me to stay in whatever country I was in. So I worked in France for a while in copyright and NGO, then was ended up in Japan writing a book about France. Uh, while living in Tokyo, which was a little odd, uh, but I had a, like I had a uh, linguistics like scholarship there, and then ended up in London. And it was when I got to London, um, and I had these grand visions of going back to journalism, and that I would arrive in my with my mighty twenty six years and my great English language skills, that I would arrive in England, and somehow everyone, without any papers, by the way, that everyone would want to hire me, which was, of course, not what happened at all. No one wanted to hire me. I was not special in any way. Like, everyone spoke English. Um, They did not need to take a chance and sponsor a person um, speaking the same language. And so I applied to everything that was listed in the Guardian job ads, um, which ranged from, like, waitressing jobs to even a CEO job. And the, there were only two places that called me back, and one of them was Google. And um, and I think Google was entirely luck. The woman who eventually hired me told me that she had gotten a stack of resumes, and mine just happened to be, you know, on the top that she happened to pick it up. And um, I was probably just lucky in that at the time Google was getting sued by a bunch of organizations um, tied to book copyright, and I had worked in copyright. And so um, they brought me in for an interview. I totally failed the interview. I, like I did really, really poorly. They didn't want to hire me, but they did want my Rolodex because I was working with all the people that were now suing them. And so they brought me on as a contractor. And once I was there, then I guess um, I dazzled them or I don't know. But whatever the case was, I eventually got converted to a full-time employee. And then um, so I was based in London for a long time. Eventually, and started off running, working across a whole bunch of different fields. Like I did a little bit of PR, a little bit of marketing, some product, policy, and then um, became more specialized over time, focusing on communications and ran communications in um, Southern Europe, Middle East, and Africa. Then got sent to Japan, where I did the same thing, but for all of Asia. And then uh, left Google, went to an insane startup which was when I actually wrote this book. I think a lot of people think I wrote it when I was at Google, but I actually wrote it as I was coming off this really horrible startup experience. This is Badu, right? Oh, I don't know, maybe. Um, <laughs> and, um, and, then, uh, and then very briefly um, moved with my husband to Russia and then ended up back at Google. So yeah, so how, do you, how did you go from Russia back to Google? Well, so uh, my husband was an economics professor, and this research that he was doing, um, what like the the place to go or one of the places to go was Russia, uh, and so I I just needed to go away from the startup, so I moved to Russia, figuring like, eh, figure it out. Um, but we didn't 
it was it was very clear to us very quickly that we didn't really want to stay there. Um, and so in the meantime, Google had come back wanting me to come back to the company. And um, and so I took the job out here. This was actually the first time I'd ever worked in – I grew up in California, but this was the first time – and first time probably in 15 years that I'd been back to the U.S. for work. But so I, I came out here and then my husband eventually joined me. And so then I was running their product communications and eventually took over all of communications for Google. So the book, which you wrote, I read as a kind of fever dream at first, at least the first draft, <laughs> uh, when you had this horrible startup experience, is a satirical look at the startup life. And and I'm, I'm surprised to hear that you didn't write it while you were working at a startup in Silicon Valley, because it has so many features of Silicon Valley. So could you tell us a little bit about, like, is there... Are there things that are specific to the Silicon Valley startup culture and has that permeated to other places like this place that you worked at that was not in Silicon Valley? Or is this just about, you know, startups in general? Doesn't matter where they are, they all kind of have the same fundamental characteristics. Yeah, it's a good question. I think the um that if you had to pinpoint it to a place that's absolutely Silicon Valley, like a hundred percent. The I think the thing that was fueling me was that I was at this crazy bad place. And that was like, let's say the emotional energy that was going into it. And certainly some of the behaviors that I saw at that startup and at other startups, not just in London, but out here, some of those may, might be universals, though, of course, not every single startup is bad. Um, but the I didn't want to set the, the... So when I was writing the story, when I first started to do this, it was basically... I had no idea it was going to be a book. Like I was on a plane and actually... So I'd gone to this conference that was a big deal in Europe, in Germany, and it was called DLD. It was sort of one of the big tech conferences. And like CEO after CEO get up there, and they just like make these huge pronouncements. This is like 2012, these or 2011, something like that. They're making these huge pronouncements about how their apps are going to change the world. And Brian Chesky, the CEO of Airbnb, gets up, and he... I kid you not, suggests that if everyone was just living in each other's houses, maybe we wouldn't have any more war. And even invokes Israel and Palestine just for like extra points. And like, I wasn't above this, right? Like, I mean, I watched that and I was like, this is absurd. This basically looks like a pretty great, but essentially like an unregulated hotel business. But I was still part of it, right? And my CEO and I got up at this same conference and basically told everyone that we were building an app to help you know, people make friends and, you know, deep connections in the real world. It was a hookup app, right? Like, um, you know, and but we couldn't you couldn't say that everything had to be framed, you know, social media valuations were much higher than a dating app valuation. So you had to create a framework and a tagline and all the kind of marketing material had to be around this much more inspirational vision. Anyway, so I was at this conference. I get on the plane to fly to New York because we're doing a marketing campaign. I get seated next to a guy who is like a DJ slash app developer slash copyright philosopher. And I'm just like, I mean, he was perfectly nice, but it was just this, I was like, what is this world where I'm like 30 and I'm sitting in business class and I'm making more money than my parents and like you know, who actually have real jobs, you know, and, and like it just, it, it it felt really crazy to me. And on top of all that, the environment at the startup I was in was, it felt incredibly um, misogynist. Uh, you know, women, you know, they, there would be frequently like, you know, comments about women not being able to code, women not being good at that. I learned um, a whole bunch of swear words in Russian to describe 
the different ways that we in the office, the women would get described. Um, sorry, the founder was Russian. And so he was always um, insulting us. Um, and uh, anyway, so it was, it was a very bad environment. And so I think I was on the plane and I was just trying to make sense of all of this and kind of, and I think on some level, the reason why I ended up being satire was that it was kind of like, how bad do I have to make things? How exaggerated do I have to be for you all to agree this is bad? Because everything I kept raising at the startup, everyone would just say, oh, it's because you're American, and you're like a prude or whatever. Oh, it's because you, you know, you just don't, you came from a big company and you don't understand how startups are. And I knew like deep down that that couldn't be right. But when everyone around you is acting like it's normal, you really start to doubt yourself. And so I think I, I think that's how the satire part of it happened was it was just like, okay, so if it's not wrong that I show up at work and there are dildos on my desk, is it wrong if it's like a dildo and an elephant? Like how bad, like where do I have to push it for us all to agree that something's wrong here? And so uh, that, sorry, so so that that's to say that kind of like the psychological fuel of the book was definitely my experience in London. But in terms of, I didn't want to set it specifically in a startup. I really was also interested in the big tech companies and what drives them. And I really wanted to set it in a big company because I was interested in, you know, this was still a period when everyone was in love with tech, not so much in Europe, but definitely in the US. And so much of it was also built around the mythology of the founder. And I was always going, yeah, but what happens when these things get bigger and bigger and bigger? And also, why is everyone talking about privacy as if privacy was the end game with these companies when in fact that's not the end game at all? And I really wanted to kind of dig into competition and what fuels this, these companies' kind of unceasing growth. That was a super long answer. I'm sorry. No, but so so the story is about a sanitation engineer, aka a janitor, who finds himself at the big tech company, and the reason that he gets a job as a product manager is because they think he came from this, uh, you know, scrappy startup that is a real rival to this company. So, just to set the stage, you sort of see in the book, uh, you know, kind of views off both of those different situations, and of course draws on your experience. Um, but I, I now totally see why you said it in, in a, as a satire. Uh, to me, I just thought it was funny. Uh, but I see that that you know there, there's this underlying point too that unless you, yeah, like uh, you know if, if it's obvious when you read the book that there's so many things wrong, and so I think that allows people then who who work in those companies to look back and say, hey, like to what extent is my life becoming a satire? <laughs> yeah. So you, you wrote this book, but it didn't get published for a while. And um, you now are no longer at Google, but you delayed leaving Google when there was a particular thing that happened. So um, can you tell us a little bit about what happened in the summer of 2017 and uh, and how that affected your decision to, to no, not leave Google at that moment? Sure. Just to take a step back. Yeah, I wrote the book in 2012 and actually found an agent really quickly. Um, she was in San Francisco um, and married to someone in tech and was super enthusiastic about this and was like, I'm going to take it to New York and we're going to sell this in like a day. And she took it to every publisher. Every publisher turned it down and every publisher basically had the same rationale, which was like, oh, it's well-written and it's funny, which of course made me feel good. Um, and that might have all been lies. Um, but then they were like, but there's no market for stuff about Silicon Valley. Your author, I was anonymous, so they were just like, your author thinks it's funny because they work in Silicon Valley. But like this thing wouldn't sell. 
So it was kind of a dead end. Like it didn't. And then I went back to Google. And even though the book wasn't explicitly about Google, I like I worked in PR. I had a pretty good like if something like this came out, everyone would assume it was some Google tell-all. But it was kind of a moot point because again, no one wanted this book. Um, so leaving Google, you know, there was the, nothing was happening with the book. But I um, was not, you know, I just kind of got, I was, I was sort of done with the job, and it took me a long time to figure that out. Are some of the sentiments that you describe in the book part of the reasons why you were done with the job? I don't mean, ex- you know, direct links or, or, you know, explicitly, but like, just that whole ethos. So, you know, and, and probably anyone, even if you haven't read the book, you probably have heard about or know about this, this, this thing in Silicon Valley, where you have this founder who is like, you know, extreme and really kind of has this positive view, but is just an ineffective people manager, uh, you know, and, and just kind of this whole thing of like, oh, you know, uh, that kind of, retaining uh, the adolescent characteristics of uh, the engineers who are at the top of the hierarchy. So, you know, foosball ball tables and, you know, tons of cereal available at all times. Uh, you know, is that is that what you mean in terms of what, what kind of or, or was it something else? There was, a, I mean, I think a lot of times when we leave jobs, there's a huge number of factors. I actually eventually wrote an essay for Medium that was like 108. your 837 step plan to quitting your job, because that's how many steps it took me. Um, You know, I think there was the, there was definitely an element of feeling like um, I wasn't fully behind everything we were doing. You know, when I first started at Google, I was so inspired by the idea of book search and this idea of putting all the world's information online and making that discoverable for, for people to me wasn't to me who had had to wait six months to get a grant to consult a book to fly around the world to then discover that that book was useless all for a thesis. The idea that you could now do that in front of a computer to me was incredible, and I still still thought and think there are things like that at Google and at the other companies. But I also found that we'd gotten to a size where and had a level of power where it's really hard not to start to have to make compromises on things and in some cases to do things or to 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 build products where you hadn't necessarily thought about the consequences or hadn't thought in advance um, the different ways that they could go pear-shaped. Mm-hmm. And um, and so that was starting to weigh on me. And, and I think the, the thing I'll say that was actually in the book was, you know, when there, particularly when I was in Europe, there were so many fears around privacy. And now in the US, there's a lot of fears around privacy. But everyone kind of talked about tech as if the thing that all of us were trying to do was just get at your personal data, like that that was the holy grail was to get as much data on everyone. And that always struck me as such a red herring, because if the goal was just to get everyone's personal data, if that was the end game, then you know how to like you kind of then have a path forward as to how to regulate it or how to ring fence it, how to protect or create certain barriers for certain kinds of things, but not others, not necessarily to curtail innovation, but to protect people. But I think that end game is actually something that's much more primitive and ego-driven, which is, is much more about trying to be everywhere and very, very attuned to what your competition is doing. And so you know, if one person has an, you know, an AR initiative, another person has to, another company is going to do AR, um, and they're all watching each other. And I think it's so interesting when you look at the big tech companies, and you could do this with any tech company. You know, if you look at Google, how do you, you know, you're doing Google search, and then all of a sudden you realize that, well, wait a second, actually, you know, Google search is doing great, but um, we can be blocked at the browser level. Because IE, we all forget this now, because most of us use Chrome or maybe Firefox, but IE was 
the browser, you know, um, at one point in time. And so then they go and build the browser. And then you're, you've got, and then you all of a sudden your browser's climbing, you become dominant on the browser side, but then you're like, wait a second, we can be blocked on the hardware level. So then you build the hardware, you build the phones, you build the tablets, the computers. And then you even say, wait a second, what about the fiber? Um, and you can go through that with every, you know, you can do that with Facebook or you can do that with Google. Like how do you go from being an online bookstore to buying Whole Foods? And so I was, I, that I think feeling of a, a somewhat intangible sense of not being comfortable with this idea of one company or just one or two companies ha- having catering to all of my needs and having everything. Um, and I know that sounds like a little kind of collegey or smoking pot and talking about marks or something, but I really think there's something in that. Um, so, okay. So that was sort of, that was sort of one driver. And then there was like a really basic just kind of work thing, which is that, you know, um, by the time I got to the management team and was running, um, everything in communications, you know, I wasn't working as side by side with my team as I had been in the past. Um, or I wasn't working side by side with the engineers that built a particular product and we would all work together to launch something. It was much more management focused or working, usually via VC with other people on the management team. And it started to feel a little dehumanizing, right? Like I think what I'd enjoyed about the job was um, going deep on particular issues with smaller teams. And I kind of felt like I was in a big company. Across America, BP supports more than 275,000 jobs to keep energy flowing. Jobs like building grid-scale solar energy in Ohio and producing gas with fewer operational emissions in Texas. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. Are you a software professional looking to make a lasting impact on people and the planet? At General Motors, our vision is a world with zero crashes, zero emissions, and zero congestion. And we need innovative people like you to join us on this journey and challenge the limits of what is possible. From autonomous cars to software-defined vehicles, you'll translate breakthrough technologies like AI into experiences that people love, all while pushing the world forward toward an all-electric future. See how you can shape the future of mobility at careers.gm.com. Professional welder Shayna Ford used VR training developed by ForgeFX to hone her skills as a welder. The more time that you spend practicing it, that's what separates a good welder from a great welder. VR training can help students like Shayna repeatedly practice specific skills. Virtual reality definitely helps because the more muscle memory that you have, the smoother your weld is. Explore more stories like Shayna's at meta.com slash metaverseimpact. I want to come back to this idea that, you know, I think people would be, I think this is a new idea, at least it is for me, of uh, that the problem in, in Silicon Valley or in tech in general is not the loss of privacy of the individual, but rather the power and monopoly of these big companies. Because, I mean, certainly, you know, Google, Facebook, Amazon, they're very good at taking our private information, but they're even better <laughs> at monopolizing their space. Uh, and so they've been incredibly successful at that. Um, so, you know, what, what do you see? And you see, do you, is it accurate to say that you see that as potentially the biggest problem? 
I think the thing that's difficult is, um, and obviously I'm not a lawyer, but here I go trying to say something legal. Um, no, I, I won't. I won't get too much into this because I'll, I'll screw up the legal side of it. But there are, of course, different definitions of, say, dominance in different parts of the world. In the U.S., though, you know, there's a there's a lot around. Is okay, you can be dominant. That doesn't mean you're bad. Right. And so the argument that if you're a tech company, you would make is you say, yes, we are very popular. You never use the word dominant. <laughs> um, PR tip for anyone listening. Um, so, you know, we are very popular, but these are all the user benefits. And so you make a user centric argument. Mm-hmm. I think the issue with how we look at, and, and no doubt there are good legal reasons in terms of why this happens, but I think the problem is that. If you're a tech company and you get an investigation or people are concerned that you have too much share of the advertising market, you try and scope that as narrowly as possible, right? Um, or sorry, as broad, like, it, well, narrow or broad, depending on how you look at it. You want, them, you want them to see that in the overall pie of all advertising, you are this size of a sliver. You don't want them to zoom in on saying online advertising or mobile advertising. And so maybe you win that argument. But what that inquiry is not going to take into account is that, okay, you have this online advertising, but you also have this business and this business and this business and this business. And I think it's that. It's it's the pervasiveness or the omnipresence of these companies that really gets people worked up. Yes, some 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 specific people, usually competitors or people that are in these spaces, get very worked up about this single slice. Mm-hmm. But my issue is actually, in, in many cases, less about the, sim- the single slice but rather the the what happens when you add all these things up. To make this more concrete, here's two examples. So I remember in Google when we were launching Street View, I was in London then. And the German team, you know, I, I remember was like, don't launch this here, or we've got to do it differently, or whatever their, their specific feedback was. But they were like, you know, taking a bunch of black cars and driving them around East, you know, East Berlin. Like that, that feels a lot like the Stasi. Taking pictures. Right, yeah. taking pictures. But, you know, the U.S. barreled ahead um, and the product was launched there. Um, German government was not happy. They came back saying, we think this is, you know, you're taking people's personal information. And the Google argument, which would have been the argument that Facebook or Apple or any tech company would have made, and they make it all the time with, with other kinds of, com- you know, comparisons. Amazon will talk about brick and mortar bookshops sometimes when it'll talk about its, you know, online bookstore. Um, is you'd say, how is this any different from, you, you know, Indre walking down the street and taking pictures with her camera? We're not doing anything more invasive than that. And the German government's response was something to the effect of, it's not the same thing because you are stitching together all this. Like the scale of this operation matters. So don't try and make this kind of this comparison. And I think that's what we miss sometimes is that we look at the the arguments that the lawyers make or that the tech companies makes reduces everything to here is Indre taking a picture of this house. Mm -hmm. And we don't look at the fact that they also have the entire street. Mm -hmm. Another example of this would be, I remember when I was at Google, we had uh, Amazon would not carry Chromecast, which was like a Google product. And whatever, it's just a competitive thing, right? Like Amazon doesn't want to run Google. They probably now do it. I haven't looked. Um, Amazon doesn't want to run like, you know, promote Google products or like provide a platform for Google products. Google probably doesn't want to do something for Amazon either. But what happens when you are the default entry point for something, right? If everyone is using your online store, right? And you've gone and I mean, Amazon did this with diapers, right? Like kind of famously, they can undercut competitors on pricing. So they can decide not to have someone on their platform. They can undercut if they're making the same product, they could undercut someone on the on the price. And people will say, but they haven't done all that yet. Or they, you know, we're never going to get to that because eventually that's not good for their business. But 
but we don't know. And I'm not a conspiracy theorist, but I do think that when you have really, really large companies, public companies, you do have to have a healthy eye on the regulatory side to make sure that you're maintaining a healthy ecosystem and that you aren't letting one company or just a couple of companies run everything. Um, I think that is really ultimately what's best for consumers. So I think it'll be really interesting to see how the regulatory conversation evolves. Right now, it's pretty moronic, a lot of the things that have been suggested, in my opinion. So you were done with uh, the job, and then this manifesto came out. Uh, oh, yeah, that was the original Google. question. I'm sorry. <laughs> yeah, that's okay. So yeah. yeah, so tell us about that. And, you know, can, yeah, you tell the story. Yeah, so I was supposed to go. I um, So I decided I was leaving. I actually applied to grad school um, and, and, you know, just to give myself enough time to get out the door and everything. And I give my notice. Um, and then, like, the day <laughs> that we were supposed to announce it, um, there was a memo that uh, came out, um, a man named James Moore, who had written a memo that was basically arguing that women were ill-equipped, biologically ill-equipped to, um, I don't, I can't remember right now whether it was programmers or science <laughs> generally. Or, or be engineers, basically. Right, right, that, yeah. That, yeah. Um, <laughs> and uh, anyway, and it took off, it was very quick from the moment that, I think he had shown it to some people you know, here and there. But then once it's, you know, it was on like a small mailing list and then all of a sudden it was on an internal mailing list and then it was on a big mailing list. And so it took off within a number of hours. And it was like, it was obviously a huge, I mean, I say obviously that it was a huge debate where people are talking about speech in terms of what can be said in a company, but it still struck me at the time as extraordinary. I do think there are things that we tolerate to be said about women that we wouldn't tolerate about other segments of the population. And certainly other segments of the population might have things applied to them that with women wouldn't happen. But I thought it was really fascinating um, that at a company, particularly like a very liberal company where, you know, well over 95% of all donations go to Democrats and liberal causes, that there was uh, so much hair pulling over what to do. But anyway, in the, in the end, uh, he was like, oh. So you're the head of communications. How do you deal with this PR nightmare? How did, what did you, what was your strategy? And like, what, you know, can you tell us a little bit about sort of like, you know, how I, I just can't imagine being in your shoes in that moment and what I would do other than like go and put my head in under a blanket for a day. Well, it's interesting. I mean, there's probably certain stuff I can't talk about, but I think on the, like on a high level, what's interesting with something like this, if you're at a company, which is so perceived to be a very progressive liberal company and to be a company that has historically been quite vociferous on progressive issues, like say Prop 8, that, which means in DC, DC largely views the Valley, not just Google, but Facebook, um, Apple, Amazon, even though Amazon's not in the Valley, as being in, in the pocket of the Democrats. There's all, I mean, there's been, you know, over the past two years or since the election, a lot of just noise largely from the conservatives around um, suppression of speech and, and so forth. And, and the companies, particularly Facebook, have scrambled to show that they love conservatives too, that they're not, you know, partisan. And they're not, I'm not like, certainly my Google experience and I imagine in Facebook too. I think, I think the engineers are very, very focused on building a product that is uh, politically neutral, right? And providing a good search experience. I've never, I never saw any, any example of partisanship in terms of say like search results, which was always a kind of conservative conspiracy theory. But you have something like this happen 
where the person who's written the memo um, is going on um, conservative and even alt-right kind of outlets and talking about what's happened, about his speech being, you know, mm. suppressed or fired for speaking the truth, I think was some headline I saw. Um, you know, having cherry-picked a ton of the science and not, you know, having it being decried by scientists, but still there were those particularly on the alt-right, that really picked it up and, and, you know, said this man has been persecuted for for telling the truth. Finally, we all know women should not be uh, coders. And so what do you do? This kind of is your worst nightmare because the conservatives are already sort of set against you because they think you are biased against them. In many other respects, this should you should have a winning argument, right? For the most part, conservatives would be sympathetic to an argument of um, it is a private business and we're allowed to fire and hire at will, right? But when you when you there's already a perception that you have that you're biased, that argument matters a lot less to people. And then on the you know I suppose on the liberal side, it's the the you have just you know did you act fast enough or were you hard enough and why you know um, things like that. But for the most part, and then you have the employee contingent, right? Um, that not all the employees were uh, in favor of. Uh, what we did. Um, I mean, I think the vast majority were. And then there were some that that certainly felt that the speech was reprehensible, but that it there shouldn't be censorship of any speech. Mm-hmm. I think this the whole debate around um, speech on the internet is a fascinating one, and particularly right now of point of time. But I do think what speech is allowed in the workplace is a slightly different flavor of that. I also think that most people come to work uh, wanting to do their jobs mm-hmm. yeah. <laughs> and not to be told that they are not capable of doing them because of their biology right so um okay so you left google eventually when when the kind of storm passed uh this book came out and uh now uh you're still working on your mfa i do that very (laughs) part-time right Um, so yeah yeah, so but you're also the ceo of a startup yes yes (laughs) so that's a kind (laughs) of really fascinating journey (laughs) So can you talk at all about the startup or is that still in, in cog, what is it called? Not incognito mode, but. Um, uh, stealth. Uh, stealth mode. Are you still in stealth mode? We are not stealth. I don't know. Maybe we, I don't know. Um, I've been very lazy on the marketing side of it. Uh, not lazy, but just focused on other things. Um, that'd be really great for a VC, like a VC backer to hear me be like, I've been very lazy. Um, no, I um, we haven't focused on anything public yet, um, but we are called Audio Shake. And what we do is um, we can we do a field of AI that's um, in sound separation, and what that and, and specifically in music. So we take a song and we can split it into um, its component sounds. So why would you want to do this? Um, if you think of how music is recorded, so today, say Katy Perry goes into the studio and she lays down her vocal track, and then someone comes in and does the drums, and someone comes in and does, you know, the bass. And then you take the best take, you layer it all together, and you produce this, well, wonderful, I don't know, depends on what you think about Katy Perry, a song that then, you know, is on the radio. Of course, if we went back 30 years, um, 40 years, then what you're talking about, things were recorded in analog. So same kind of roughly same sort of process, but you've got actual physical tapes that have these different tracks. And then back in, you know, the, say, the Beatles, but like the 60s and before that, everything was basically um, a whole bunch of people in one room and it all gets recorded. The issue anywhere along that spectrum is that if you can't break a song apart, if you don't have access to what are called like the stems, 
of a song, your uses of that song aren't limited. So you can essentially use that song as we hear it on the radio. But say you wanted to have that song for karaoke, or say you wanted to run that song in a commercial, which is actually a very, it's not something that I think most of us pay attention to, but what's called the sync business um, is, is actually is, is, is very large, um, movies, advertisements, and so forth. If you want to remaster, so what happens if Ringo is louder than Paul on a song that was just recorded in mono? Well, there's not much you can do. You can't turn Ringo down um, because you can't break that song apart. So anyway, I'm simplifying a bit, but basically what we do is we use um, we use AI to break that song apart, and then the record labels and the publishers or whoever the rights holder is, the musician, um, can use that song for new uses. So it's helping musicians and the industry make more money for their music. And so even if even in the case in which it was recorded in mono, yeah, I mean that's like the kind of that's the, that's the most exciting part yeah. is that I mean it's crazy to me that even songs that are recorded now in 2020 that those stems don't get handed over to like from the producer say to the record label but it does happen probably wouldn't happen with a Katy Perry record but um but it does still happen so we have clients who will actually ask us to do a song from like 2019 where they don't have the tracks and that'll eventually be fixed people will remember that we have the cloud and that, that all that is very easy to store but yeah the stuff that's really exciting and exciting for us is like last week we broke apart a um like a chubby checkers song like let's do the twist right um and we did like a peggy lee one and uh led zeppelin and fleetwood mac and that's really fun and it's also just fun to work on it because then when you're listening to the track afterwards just to like hear the quality of it you kind of just start bobbing your head <laughs> like and it's and you almost feel like you're doing karaoke do you think this would ever be applied to speech? So like uh, Martin Luther King's famous speech, like, you know, have a, and what, what might be the implications there? To speech? I mean, there's a lot that you can already, there's a lot of things that you can do in sound separation. You can look at like phrase boundaries, like podcasts, there could be, you could think of things that you could do with that. A lot of this technology that you use to, in order to know what the, for your training data, we have like our training data has to be pure. We have to know that something is a drum stem, something is a vocal stem, that what we're training on is actually what we think we're training on. And we also, so we have to also build a system of how we classify the music that we're training on. And by creating those kinds of classifiers, there's other uses that you, that you have. What was it you were specifically thinking about? I mean, I guess I was just thinking like, you know. You're going uh, in like weird deep fake, like a little bit. Yeah. I thought. (laughs) I could see the conspiracy in your eyes. Sorry. (laughs) Yeah, so I was like, uh, I'm going to bore you to death and talk about classifiers instead. Yeah. (laughs) All right, we'll set aside the potential deep fake uh, uh, use of your uh, of your algorithm, or I guess your AI. Um, Uh, But okay, but no, but let's play along. So you're saying, like, could you take a a speech, um, break it apart, and then like remix it essentially into something else? Sure, but you could already do that now, right? Like if you were thinking of like, I think you said Martin Luther King Jr. So if you took like, I have a dream, there's no reason in just, you know, um, quick pro that you couldn't just chop that and then like rebuild it. So the difference here is that you're taking layers of sounds and you're, 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 uh, maintaining the integrity of like a particular layer. So like, which, right. which I wouldn't be able to, in speech, like, yeah, I mean, I guess I could take, uh, could I make, you know, Martin Luther King sound like a chipmunk? Just, well, I could do that just by increasing the speed at which he speaks. But, you know, that's, yeah, here, here you're, you're arguing that like for each individual soundtrack, that's what you would want. Right. I mean, where another application of this could be like in the podcasting world, um, you know, I haven't done any podcast editing, uh, so you'll know better than I will. But 
everything is manual, right? In terms of knowing when speech stops and when to put in ads and oh, all that I kind see. of So you could do yeah. stuff with phrase boundaries, I imagine, and uh, automate a lot of that work. Ah, put my editor out of business. Yeah, or, <laughs> or like let your editor focus on the more interesting stuff because that work I imagine is actually a bit tedious. Yes, he does tell me he hates that stuff and loves the actually important intellectual work of editing. So yeah. thanks, Adam, for all you do. <laughs> <laughs> all right, so um, one last question, which is now that you're back in, you know, you're, you're in, uh, you know, the founder of a startup, you're at the sort of bottom of the totem pole in terms of the whole Silicon Valley after having been in a management position well, at thanks, one of the world. Make me feel good there. No. <laughs> yes, but yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh-huh. Companies in yeah. the world. Um, have you found that spark of joy again? I mean, do you feel like now this is different from where you were? And, and are, are you? Oh, about sure. It? I mean, I think there's just a ma- maybe it depends on the person, but I think there's a massive psychological difference between taking orders from other people or have you know being woken up at five in the morning or at midnight with some disaster happening somewhere around the world or someone writes a memo, right? Like for me at least, feeling like I'm in control of my life um, is huge. Like I think I'm just as busy as I was um, when I was at Google. But the ability to decide what I want to do, and if I don't want to do something, that might be the wrong decision, but that's my decision, right? And and I live with the consequences. That That's an an entirely different shift. If I decide to work at 10 o'clock or I decide not to work at 10 o'clock, it's because I've decided to do it. So yeah, no, I'm super happy. Jessica Powell, uh, thank you for being on Inquiring Minds. And I just want to remind our listeners that her satirical novel about Silicon Valley, The Big Disruption, is now available at booksellers everywhere. Thank you very much. So that's it for another episode. Thanks for listening. And if you want to hear more, don't forget to subscribe. Also, it would really help us out if you would give us a rating on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. If you'd like to get an ad-free version of this show, consider supporting us at patreon.com slash inquiringminds. I want to especially thank David Noel, Herring Chang, Sean Johnson, Jordan Millar, Kyle Raihala, Michael Galgool, Eric Clark, Yushi Lin, Clark Lindgren, Joel, Stefan Meyer Ewald, and Charles Blyle. Inquiring Minds is produced by Adam Isaac. I'm your host, Indre Viscontis, and I'll see you next week. Are you a software professional looking to make a lasting impact on people and the planet? At General Motors, our vision is a world with zero crashes, zero emissions, and zero congestion. And we need innovative people like you to join us on this journey and challenge the limits of what is possible. From autonomous cars to software-defined vehicles, you'll translate breakthrough technologies like AI into experiences that people love, all while pushing the world forward toward an all-electric future. See how you can shape the future of mobility at careers.gm.com.